Let's look in our Bibles this morning, the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want to share a message with you if, uh, if you've, uh, maybe you're visiting with us or you haven't been here in a few weeks. We're, we're kind of looking at the life of King David. and We've been looking at his life for several weeks. And today I want to share a message with you that I've titled Grace giving and glory, because we will see in our text today how all three of those items, those disciplines are mentioned, the the grace of God and our response to that grace and and our giving of ourselves to God and how that ultimately brings honor and glory to God. Have you ever, uh, around the holiday time, you go and maybe you go into Winn-Dixie, you go to Walmart or Target or wherever you might go, and you prepare to go in there, and you hear these cling, 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 little bell. Now, that's not the same bells that we were ringing this week when Mississippi State won the College World Series, okay? Did y'all know that? Did y'all know that Mississippi State Bulldogs won the College World Series? In case you didn't know it, you ought to. Uh, it's not the same bells that we ring when we win the College World Series uh, for the first time in, in, in our history, but it's the, the bells of Salvation Army rings by their kettles. Do you ever walk by there and not put something in and feel bad about it? Okay. Or how about those commercials that we'll see on TV about the, the pets that have, the, the, the dogs especially, uh, cats too, but whatever, uh, the, the dogs especially that, that we'll see that they've, they've been abandoned, they've been mistreated, and it's probably got Sarah McLaughlin singing the arms of an angel behind it. And if one of those commercials comes on, by the time it's over, I'm ready to sell our house and a kidney to send to them. You ever felt that? T- I mean, we, we, we look around us and we see all the needs that are around us and we, we see all the things that we can help out with or the things that we can make a contribution towards these, this plethora of organizations and causes that we could devote a lot of our time, a, a lot of our energy, and a lot of our material resources in trying to help. And, and that causes us to ask a question, who all should I support? I mean, what all causes? should I get behind? How much should I give to this cause or to that cause? And, and how do I know that I've done enough? I mean, if I, if I send an offering here, if I help out here, if I devote my time with this organization, how do I know when I have done enough to help all these people who are in need? And that question then pushes in on us, and it gets us to ask a question that goes a little bit deeper. How do I know what God wants from me? And how do I know that I have done enough for God? How do I know that I fulfilled my obligation to God? Is there, isn't there something more that I can do? Well, the text we're going to look at today sheds some light on that very subject. The, the, the text we are going to look at today in 2 Samuel chapter 7 comes in response to a question that David is asking about what God wants from him. David has this same question. What does God want from me? And when do I know that I have done enough? When when have I completed what God has asked me to do? And so I want us to to look at the text in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and learn from it what God can teach us today that we can summarize in these words of grace, giving, and glory. Let's look at our text in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 1. 
Now when the king, that's David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is <clears throat> excuse me, in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So David is king. God has stabilized the kingdom. The enemies have been defeated. The land is prospering. Nathan, the man who's mentioned here, he's kind of the pastor of the nation. The tabernacle in which they've been meeting is a few hundred years old. It's beginning to deteriorate. And David rightly says, It's not right that I live live in a nice house, and God lives in something that's not quite as nice. Verse 4, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent, the tabernacle, for my dwelling." In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel." And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Note the emphasis in that paragraph on God's activity. God is saying, David, this is not about you giving to me. This is about me giving to you. God is the giver. David is the receiver. Verse 12 teaches and tells us that when your days are fulfilled, this is David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you." And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. In verses 12 through 17, you see what we call a messianic prophecy. From David, God promises that a son will come from David, and this son will rule forever, and this son will build God's temple on the earth. Now, verses 14 and 15 tend to trip some of us up because we we ask the question, how could this prophecy be about Jesus if it talks about his iniquity because we know that Jesus was not a sinner. Most prophecies in your Bible, especially when they point toward Jesus, most of them have a dual fulfillment or a dual meaning. That is, there is in a sense an immediate fulfillment of that prophecy, but that prophecy is really meant to point to a future more full fulfillment of that prophecy. And that's what you're seeing here. God says, David, I'm going to bring from you someone who will establish the rule of God forever, who will build a temple. We know that David had a son named Solomon, and Solomon is the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy. It is Solomon that God uses to build this dwelling place of God, to build this house for God's name. And God, the the, the kingdom of God through David on earth would be established through Solomon. However, Solomon was not perfect. In fact, Solomon did some very Saul-like things, but God did not strip the throne from Solomon as he did with Saul. However, Solomon isn't the ultimate king that God has promised. Solomon was a disappointment, and Solomon's sons ultimately lose the physical kingdom, a greater king than Solomon was needed. You see what this prophecy, or better stated, who this prophecy points us toward is another descendant of David whose name is Jesus Christ. Christ would establish the real temple. In fact, one day in the New Testament, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He looks at the temple and he tells everyone around him, tear that temple down, and I will rebuild it in three days. And people said, you're crazy. What they failed to realize was that when Jesus came to earth, that was the presence of God, which is what the temple was about. The, the, the presence of God, the temple of God, the tabernacle of God, in its fullest sense, came down to this earth and dwelt among his people. And sure enough, when we tore down that temple, that body of Jesus, when he was crucified at the cross. That temple, Jesus was resurrected three days later by his own power. Don't miss the gospel that's found in verse 14 where God says, I will be to him a father. He'll he'll be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Jesus Christ, David's ultimate son, would not be punished for his sin, but he would be punished for our sins. To quote the prophet Isaiah, he was bruised for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him, and it is by his stripes that we are healed. And David receives this word from God. Let's look at how it responds. Verse 18. 
Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own effort, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. According to all that we, your people, Israel, have heard with our ears, and who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, God making himself a name, and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. Egypt, a nation and its gods, and you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name, not David's name, not Solomon's name, your name will be magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, has spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. What is supposed to stand out about us as people look at us is God's grace and power that is seen in our lives. Listen to me this morning. People are not supposed to look at us and say, look at what they have done for God. Rather, they should look at us and declare, look at what God has done for them. We are to be trophies of the grace and the power of God. What do we take away from this text? You know, the good thing, my favorite thing about when we have lunch here at church <clears throat> As I don't have to worry about getting you out in time to beat everybody else to Texas Roadhouse. <laughs> so what do we draw out of this text that applies to our lives today? Let me share with you quickly and briefly three lessons that we learn. First is this. God always relates to us with grace. He always relates to us with grace. You see, David had a desire that was very common among kings in the ancient world. 
a king would come to the throne, and as soon as he came to the throne in the ancient world, he would build a house for his God, whatever God he served, to thank that God for giving him the throne. And he was hoping in building this house for this God to make this God happy enough to where this God that they chose to serve would bless him and give him a reign that would last forever and ever. The order, don't miss this, the order of every kingdom in the ancient world. A king builds a temple for a false god. The beauty of that temple supposedly makes this god famous, and this false god then thanks that king by giving him a strong kingdom. It was all it was customary for credit to go to this king for doing this great thing for this god. But here, God reverses the order. God said, David, you're doing nothing for me. God is saying, David, I brought you up. I defeated your enemies. David, I'm going to make your name great. God is being gracious to David, and God is always gracious to us. Here's what I mean by that. This is the audience participatory portion of our program, okay? The question is, is God good or is God bad? He's good. A God who is good can only do good things. It's impossible for a good God to cause bad things. It's not who he is. This is why James says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Does that mean that only good things happen? No. There are bad things that happen in this world because it's fallen, because we're sinners. But a good God does only good things for his children. Now let me ask you a question I need you to think about. You have to answer out loud. But think about to yourself, what have you done to deserve those good things? What have you done to deserve the blessings that you have in life? The answer is nothing. It's all given to us by the grace of God. At the most basic level, God's relationship with us, the salvation he offers us is given to us as a gift. It's not something that we earn. Our salvation is a gift that was costly for the giver, but it's free for the recipient because Christ paid the price that we were condemned to pay. So we go back to the question, how much is a enough. The answer is Jesus has done enough. Look, following Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus is not about you living a good life and then giving a record of that good life to God when you die. That's not what it's about. What the Bible teaches us a relationship with God is about. It's about Jesus living a perfect life and then Jesus giving us his perfect record when we stand before God. It's us giving Jesus our sin and Jesus giving us our salvation. In Christ we find grace. 
He lived the life we were supposed to live, and then he died the death we should have died so we can experience eternal life. God relates to us with grace, which leads into the second lesson we learned from David's encounter with God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. One of the results, second lesson, one of the results of receiving grace is a life that gives. It's a life that gives. An important foundational principle in answering the question of how much is enough. How can I know when I've done enough for God? Here's an important principle and you need to burn into your mind and heart. God doesn't need us. Before you were born, was God God? Okay, four people believe that to be true. For the rest of us who weren't listening, before you were born, was God God? Yep. And guess what? After you die, God's going to be God. Zig Ziglar said, I know about three things in life. One, there is a God. Two, it's not me. Three, it's not you. God doesn't need us. Salvation from start to finish is a work of and from God. He was raised from the dead by his own power. The Father raised Jesus by himself. Right now, it is God alone who builds his kingdom. He said, I will build my church. He did not say, you'll build my church and I'll be around there to help you. So you say, Pastor, if God doesn't need me, can I just live for myself? That's where David's example comes into play. You see, you offer yourself fully to God in grateful response to His grace to you, willing to do whatever God calls you to do. David had a good desire. David had a reasonable desire. His desire was to do something in response to receiving God's grace. Anyone who has experienced the grace of God would want to give back to him. In fact, the the, uh, sister account of this text about David building the temple in 1 Chronicles 22. Look at what it tells us. It'll be on the screen for you. 1 Chronicles 22 says that David set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails for the doors of the gates and for clamps as well as bronze in quantities beyond weighing and cedar timbers without number. For David said, Solomon my son is young and inexperienced and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent and of fame and glory throughout all the lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. Look, David did not build the temple, but the generosity in his heart, and he provided the materials for it. His heart overflowed with gratefulness, and this was his response. This is an example for us. Will we come to God this morning and say, God, because I have received your grace, all 
that I have is yours. God, because I have received your grace, I want to give back to you and others as you have given to me. Look, not all of us are called to meet every single need that we encounter, but all of us are called to offer our lives to God as a grateful response to his grace, asking him how he might can use us for his glory. And when that happens, we are able to accomplish the third truth. In giving ourselves to God, we give glory to God. David faced a disappointment. He had this dream to build something for God, to do something big for God, but God told him, no, David, not you. The ones who will come after you. Have you ever had a desire to do something and God said, no, and there's not a Nathan in your life, the door just closes. There's not a Nathan to explain why the door just closes. This narrative reminds us that God has his reasons for our disappointments. The main reason God tells David no is because God didn't want people to make a bigger deal out of David than they did David's God. What if sometimes in our lives God ordains a disappointment because he wants us to find our joy in him instead of looking for it somewhere else? David's experience is a great reminder of God's ultimate priority, and that is to receive glory. For you see, God is building a kingdom that is greater than David's. God is building a kingdom that is greater than Solomon's. God is building an eternal kingdom that will last forever. And I want to ask you this morning, are you a part of that kingdom because the good news is that you can be for you see Jesus Christ is the only thing that lasts forever we bring nothing with us into this world and we carry nothing with us out of this world Jesus today offers his kingdom to you in fact he died so you could be a part of that kingdom but you to be a part of that kingdom you must take off your crown and give it to him you must make him the king of your life so I ask you who is the king of your life for the amazing thing about God is that no God doesn't need us but he wants us. God doesn't need us to get done what he wants to get done. God did not ask me if I thought there were enough days of light, sun in a day. God just created day and he created night. God didn't need me for that, but he wants me to fulfill his purpose. He wants to have a relationship with me. God doesn't need us, but he wants us. And he wants to use your life 
and he wants to give you eternal value. Has there ever been a time in your life when you placed yourself before God and you simply cried out to God and admitted and confessed your sins and you asked him to be your Lord and Savior? If you've never done that, you can do that this morning right where you are. I'm not going to twist your arm to do it. The Holy Spirit does a whole lot better job of convicting than I do. Whatever God's placed upon your heart today, I want you to think about how you can honor him in taking that step. So in just a second, I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to stand and sing. This altar will be open if you need to pray. I'll be down here in front if there's something we need to talk about. Randy's here down front if there's something we need to talk about. If you've got questions about what it means to follow Jesus, if you want to make him the Lord of your life. Whatever God's placed upon your heart today, my only ask is for you to put your yes on the table to whatever he's saying. Because when you follow Jesus, you find out he is a king worth following who gives meaning and value to your life. Father God, how thankful we are that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So, Father, now we pray that whatever you're placing upon our hearts to do, whatever step and decision we need to make, that today we would take that step to honor you. Have your will and your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.